This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Peter Lawrenson, the chair of the Department of Economics at the University of San Francisco. This episode is sponsored by the University of San Francisco's master's degree in applied economics, which focuses on the digital economy and the data science skills needed to analyze it, and by USF's Center on Business Studies and Innovation. My guest today is Renee Teet, Senior Director of Data Science at Helio Campus. She also previously had a blog and a podcast about her experience becoming a data scientist, which is how I heard about her, and still tweets regularly on the topic to her group of over 60,000 followers. And as it turns out, she just published a book, SQL for Data Scientists, A Beginner's Guide for for Building Datasets for Analysis, which gave me an excuse to have her on this show. Renee, welcome. Great. Thanks, Peter. Um, So why don't you first uh, tell us about your own career journey to becoming a data scientist? Sure. Um, Well, when I, uh, so my undergraduate degree is in kind of a generalist area. It's called integrated science and technology. And uh, that's from James Madison University. So in that program, you kind of get a, get the basics and a a wide range of uh, science and technology topics. And one of the areas I chose to focus on uh, was databases and, um, from right out of school, um, I started writing queries for um, some like government subcontractors and small projects. And so I've been literally using SQL for my entire career. Um, so my journey to becoming a data scientist was starting with uh, database design and building relational databases. A lot of times uh, kind of upgrading a series of spreadsheets into a relational database for a specific use case. Um, Then I moved into roles where I was doing more reporting and uh, analysis on that data. Um, So the understanding of relational database design really helped there, of course. Um, So then I worked in roles at James Madison University as an employee and at Rosetta Stone um, doing analysis on uh, alumni data, fundraising data, uh, customer data at Rosetta Stone, and basically kind of telling stories from what I could find from the data, helping answer questions that would help people make decisions. So I was a data analyst, report developer, um, learned how to dig into the data and report on it. Um, then on my own, I started learning uh, data science basically from internet sources and things like that, just kind of dipping my toe in there. And I started a master's program at UVA. Uh, It was a master's in systems engineering. Um, That program had a single machine learning course that I took as an elective. And that really let me know that even though the math part of it wasn't my strength, um, the applied part of it really was. And so 
the professor uh, was really impressed with how I um, built my project and, you know, did the kind of the finale of the course. So I wasn't sure I was going to pass <laughs> based on my performance in the course to that point. But apparently I, uh, you know, blew that part out of the water. So I got very good feedback. It made me feel like this is kind of a culmination of what I've been learning all along and being able to take all the reporting and kind of predict into the future was so cool to me um, and figuring out exactly how to apply it. So kind of evolved from data analyst into data scientist um, at my role and then officially got my first title of data scientist uh, at Helio campus. So where I work now is where I started my official data science journey and um, have worked my way from data scientist to senior director of data science. And I have a team now. So I've been there about six years. Great. And uh, and what what is it that uh, Helio Campus does? Yeah, we work with colleges and universities uh, working with their student data. So there's kind of multiple aspects to what Helio Campus does, and I'll explain my part in it. Um, but one of the main components is that it's a platform where at the universities, they have all kinds of relational databases. So they'll have databases for applications and for enrollments and for financial aid and for faculty and staff and HR. And so uh, the platform helps kind of join all of those separate databases together. Uh, it creates some extracts from each of those that give you a picture of kind of the whole student life cycle or different aspects of the university functions. And we have uh, like reports and dashboards built on top of that. And then my team uses those pre-combined extracts to then build uh, data sets that help us look at usually at like a per student level um, information about the student from like their application and background through their performance at the institution and help us understand which data points are correlated with things like retention. So when you enroll as a freshman, what's the likelihood that you'll still be enrolled a year later? Um, and so we, we build predictive models based on that data um, that helps the university make decisions about um, outreach to the students, about providing services and things to help them stay enrolled at the institution. Well, that sounds really useful. Yeah, I know. I don't think I don't think we use Helio Campus here, but we certainly deal deal with those issues. And uh, and yeah, as you know, as an economist, I'm always sort of wanting to have more data and more precise data about like, okay, you say retention is important. Well, so who are we losing? And, you know, and they have, uh, yeah, tools for figuring that out, but I'm sure there's a lot uh, to be done in, in improving the state of the art with that. Yeah. And as kind of a transitional data analyst into data science, I've been able to see kind of the progression of the different levels of maturity of data science at the different universities. And this is true across all different, you know, types of uh, institutions, whether it's a university or a company or anything like that, being able to first answer questions with data like I did in my previous roles, and then being able to use that same information to kind of identify trends and project into the future. So it's it's kind of interesting, like evolving along with those clients to be able to look at their data in a new way that they, they haven't seen it before. Mm -hmm. Well, that's great. So now, um, uh, I guess, well, first, first, you have to answer the, the key question. So is it supposed to be pronounced SQL or SQL? I've heard it both ways. And really, to me, as long as you're communicating, it d doesn't really matter. I always say SQL, <laughs> just quicker for me and how I first learned it. But I have no issue with people calling it SQL. 
Okay, I was, I've been curious because I yeah I've also heard it both ways, and you know, uh, was trying to figure out what way the cool kids uh, say it. Um, <laughs> so uh, I'll, I'll go ahead and call sequel then. So I'll take you as my cool kid and and all right. that. Um, so uh, so you've mentioned relational databases um, mm-hmm. and. Uh, the, we were actually talking um, before we started about how, you know, from a lot of different fields, people are used to, I mean, uh, economists, and I think a lot of other people may not even know what that is, right? We're mm-hmm. used to, you get handed a nice square data set, right? Something, you know, mm-hmm. like could appear in an Excel spreadsheet. And so, uh, you know, either either you're handed that up front and uh or you know even if you're collecting your own data like you know a social scientist often will do you know surveys or something like that but then it kind of naturally like it just automatically slots into that kind of format um so so tell us what a relational database is as opposed to a a data set such as we might just see in in excel spreadsheet Sure. And what you described is also one of the reasons I wrote the book, because a lot of people coming out of school um, only have that experience of being handed a spreadsheet or flat file and and starting the analysis from that point. So typically when you go to work uh, for a company, um, you're, you're often the one that has to pull that data yourself. So it could either be a relational database or a data warehouse, um, which is when I describe that there are extracts created from all these underlying uh, data systems that we do our work with, that's called a data warehouse. Um, So let's see, how do I describe a relational database? Basically, if you have a lot of uh, different like more granular tables, say for students, there will be maybe a table with one row per student and a table with one row per courses per course. And so if you're, you know, looking at that data and you want to analyze something about the number of courses a student is taking or the grades they received in the course, you have to combine that data somehow. So you would take the table that has information of uh, one row per student with maybe their address or their um, their grade level in school or just general information about that student and the table of courses that will have like the course subject, the course number and things like that. And then there's some, some table that will store the combination of the two. So which student is in which course? Uh, so you can look at it both ways. Each student can be in one or more courses. Each course can have one or more students. And at the intersection, you could have the information that is the student course combination. So for each student course combination, you know, which section were they in, which grade did they receive from that course, things like that. So a relational database allows you to take to two separate files like that, two separate tables, and join them together and describe in what way they're joined. Um, and then when you query from that database, you have to have the understanding of what's in each table and how are they combined at the intersection so that you can build the appropriate combination data set to do your analysis. And SQL is the, is this the only way or just the most common way to, to access this data and, and get it organized? It's the most common way and has been for decades now. Um, so that's one thing that's interesting is that when I decided to write about SQL, it, people often look at it as an old technology, right? Like we have different interfaces now that are drag and drop for for pulling data from different systems or um, I don't know. There's There's been a variety of different approaches over the years, but SQL has always persisted. So I, I would say it's the most common, most frequently used and just most pervasive that whether you're talking about, you know, a 
AWS Redshift data warehouse or uh, Microsoft SQL Server or MySQL, or I mean, there's just so many different database systems out there and you can query them all with SQL. So it's like the one commonality that if you learn that, there might be other layers of technology on top of that, but you can kind of port your SQL knowledge to all different kinds of database systems. And it's been a standard, you know, since the 70s and 80s. And so uh, in what kind of courses do people normally um, like learn about SQL if they do get it in school? Yeah, that's what's interesting. Um, I've found, I've been surprised to find that a lot of courses for data scientists don't touch on SQL. So a lot of times you might get it in a computer science program, or if you're doing an IT type uh, degree where you're learning about like how to manage database. So maybe you're, you're learning about a database administrator kind of role. Um, or uh, I was lucky at JMU to get it in a course. Um, that, there was a course for designing relational databases. And at the time it was um, it was kind of cutting edge at the time in terms of relational databases that were behind websites. So it was like mind opening at the time to realize, oh, when I go to amazon.com to buy a textbook, which is the main thing we went to Amazon for back then, um, mm-hmm. that there's a database behind that. And that's what's loading this you know, item and everything related to this item onto the page. And so we learned about databases in conjunction with web interfaces. So interestingly, like data scientists often don't get that background for how to design and build a database, um, which is expected. But I would have thought that schools were teaching them how to query the database and build a data set. And I'm finding out that a lot of times the degrees focus on the machine learning part of it, the analysis part of it, statistics, you know, and they're starting with a spreadsheet. Then they get, I've been told by some people, well, I got into a job. I finally got my first data science role and they want me to create my own data set. And I don't, I don't know where to start. We didn't learn this part. (laughs) So that was part of the motivation for writing this. Yeah. It seems like there's kind of, uh, from talking to people, there's an idea that it's kind of it's kind of lowbrow. Like, it's just like, oh, well, you know, yeah, someone has to do the the grunt labor of like actually giving you a data set. But then like, you know, the what you want to learn is the fancy stuff, you know, that's cool, like the latest machine learning technique that you can <laughs> right. apply to this data set, um, you know, and, and especially from people in it, you know, I mean, this is true for academics in general, right? We always mm-hmm. want to teach people the latest and greatest and coolest nifty things that we just learned ourselves, maybe. Um, but then, yeah, talking to people, you know, with with all kinds of backgrounds who are in uh, data science and the tech sector, it, it seems like often it's like, yeah, just, you know, just being the person who can get the right data and mm-hmm. do a really, you know, dumb uh, descriptive statistic about it um, or visualization is mm-hmm. is often... Yeah, it seems like that's often, you know, 90% of the work um, on a a regular basis. And sometimes the companies are hiring a data scientist before they really have the infrastructure to support a data scientist, and they just don't understand what's needed. And so sometimes it's that kind of disconnect. In other cases, you might have an entire engineering team that can support you and build the data sets for you. Like in our case, we have these extracts pre-built, but we have to do additional transformation to get it into the form we need it for specifically for, uh, you know, our type of classification model, for example, or even if you're working with an engineer, if you understand databases and SQL enough to communicate with them, you're going to get the results much faster than just generically describing what you need 
and hoping that they can translate that into the query you need. So even if someone else is actually writing the SQL for you, I think it's really valuable as a data scientist to understand SQL. Yeah, and I think especially, you know, if you're in, you know, if you are someone who can think like a data scientist or economist, you're, you're, you know, you may not be a programmer, but like you've got, you know, familiarity with kind of logical statements and conditional statements and thinking about how to organize things that I think lends itself to to picking up this kind of thing, you know, rarely, fairly quickly. Yeah, definitely. I came at it from the other direction, learning SQL and databases first, and then Python later in life. Um, But you can definitely go the reverse direction if you know how to code in Python. I think it's it's not difficult code to pick up from SQL. And I think other people have told me they feel the same way that the actual code itself isn't difficult. It's more the thinking of data in this relational way that imagining ways to combine the data and converting that into a query. That's the bridge to cross there not, not actually writing the code. That's the hard part. Right. I think the, there's a sort of perpetual joke among economists on Twitter about using Stata, which is the um, you know old line uh, um, regression software that that mm-hmm. kind of is the default in academia and a lot of policy. And uh, people are always always talking about like having to remember how to reshape wide versus reshape long. You know, just in a, a data set that's like longitudinal, like a panel data set where there's you know one person over multiple periods of time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I guess, you know, that that's sort of the easiest uh, example of this, but yeah. it seems like having that kind of thinking for an even wider range of different ways the data could be could be organized and, and gathered. Yeah, um, definitely. Yeah, it's a little bit of a brain stretch. So mm-hmm. so your book, um, so your book is not the first book on how to do SQL. So so right. what is different about your approach of how you how you wrote it and how you try to convey the topic and, and what you cover? Yeah, and this is what I had to detail when I was proposing the book, because SQL is not a new technology. And there have been books for decades on SQL. There are huge reference books, you know, large dictionary sized books on how to do everything in SQL. There's slight variations for different databases where, you know, writing a specific function to get you know, to convert a string into a time or something might be a date time might be different in one versus the other. But I wanted to get at that conceptual angle of like, okay, you have access to the database, you know, you need a data set for analysis, how do you get from A to B? Um, and so I focus specifically on thinking through the process of creating a data set for machine learning. Um, but also, Um, focusing on just that subset of items that data analysts need and data scientists need. So for example, I'm not focusing on how to create a new user or give somebody access to a table or Mm. um, delete rows because there was a nightly refresh. Like that's not the part of the process that data scientists are usually concerned with. It's more about like a read only view in a lot of cases. I mean, there is a chapter about writing things to tables, but for the most part, the book focuses on select queries because it's uh, understanding how to pull data from a lot of different places, join it together at the granularity you need for your analysis, doing some transformations of the data to prepare it for input into the model and kind of just getting it into the shape you need. Okay. And so, um, so your your book, you have a, a running example, and you you posted a data set that people can access. Is that right? Yeah, on on my website, SQLforDataScientist.com, um, there's a farmers market example. So it's a full relational database, and you can practice writing queries against that. 
So just to, to re-review re the idea of a relational database, what is what are the uh, the elements in it uh, yeah, in your so, farmer's market one? Yeah. yeah, so for the farmer's market database, we have um, customers, uh, we have products, we have vendors. And so it's kind of a typical like uh, commercial shop kind of database where um, you have a certain inventory available, um, you have different shops or different vendors at the farmer's market, and then you have customers buying those products. So it's kind of, I'm not sure how many farmer's markets actually have a database that tracks what every, uh, you know, buyer buys from each vendor. Usually it's a more, you know, cash transaction with no uh, database involved, but I just I wanted the, to, of, uh, you know, back to the land philosophy that makes people want to go to farmer's markets. Probably if they felt like they were being tracked, they'd be like, Oh, never mind. No, I can't. <laughs> That's possible. market already knows everything about me, and I want this guy just to know that, like, I smile at him when, and that I like the really fresh avocados or something. <laughs> so maybe think of it more as a shopping mall, but, but right, with right. vegetables instead of yes. <laughs> instead of items. But yeah, it's um, those are the different tables behind the scenes, and then uh, in the book it goes through the relationships uh, in the database that you need to understand in order to write queries against that particular relational database. Okay. Um, and so let's see, so it's hard to get too much into it because it really gets into like details of like the syntax and kind of, you know, things that are easier to, you know, help, help really help to have visualized on the page. But like, mm -hmm. why don't you talk more about, I mean, so one thing is you're, you're selecting specific kinds of data. What are the other kinds of tasks that you can do with, uh, do with SQL, you know, that, that are necessary to do prior to the point where you have, you know, like you said, a nice flat database that you can uh, do machine learning or do econometrics on. Yeah. Um, so it starts at the very beginning. It assumes that you've never written SQL before. And so you start with a select statement that's uh, just pull everything from a table. So that's similar to what you get if you just had, you know, a spreadsheet, get all of it. Um, then it goes into how you can filter that data. So you might only want a subset of the rows. Um, it goes into case statements, which are like if statements, if you've done other types of programming, uh, where you might want to do something if you see a certain value of data. Um, so uh, one example in machine learning is that you can't directly input a string into a mathematical algorithm. So you might want to turn it into a category uh, that's represented by a number. So um, let's say that it's the farmer's market database, you have an item, and it's there's lots of different types of peppers. And so you want to create a category for peppers. And so you don't care what kind of pepper it is, if the you know, title of the item is has the word pepper in it, it's jalapeno pepper or, you know, green pepper or whatever, you want to put a flag value there. So you want it to be one if there's a pepper and zero if the word pepper doesn't exist. So a case statement allows you to do that transformation from if the word pepper is in the string, then put a one in the column, otherwise put a zero. So it's that type of transformation that you need um, might be considered like one hot encoding if you know machine learning terminology. Um, I talk about joining the different tables underneath to get the granularity you need and the level of summary that you need. So joins and aggregation um, let you pull from multiple sources and aggregate it to, uh, for example, in my line of work, we often need one row per student per term. So we might have all kinds of 
data sources in terms of um, grades, in terms of the student's application, um, information about the student. So we want to summarize that all into a single row and um, summarize it per term. So we might have their grade at the end of their first term, their GPA at the end of their second term, for example. Um, And so we have to know how to do aggregations across that data. Um, And then we get into what would be considered more advanced functionality in terms of window functions and subqueries. So um, if you're a true beginner, you most beginner sources don't get into those more advanced, but I, I quick, because it's focused in on just the things you need to know as a data scientist, um, it quickly gets to the advanced level of that subset of information. Because you're just focused on that narrow, yeah, those narrow parts of right. what people really need. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well that sounds um, that sounds great. Uh, yeah, I think it's going to be hard to dig too much deeper into it uh, without losing people. But um, what uh, I wanted to ask you, you mentioned you're now working with a team of four data scientists. A little bit a change of topic, but um, I'm curious if uh, you know how that experience has been going from being uh, you know the individual contributor who's just you know creating the database and doing your own analysis to uh, to working with and leading a team. Yeah, um, it's been a big shift for me as my first management role. And then also, um, I think I did a pretty good job hiring people in terms of finding the right combination of skills for the task at hand. So one thing that's kind of a myth in terms of data science, people look at all the topics and there's like classification models, regression models, natural language processing, satellite imagery, you know, self-driving cars, and you just get overwhelmed with the wide variety of topics you can learn. Um, And so what you typically do is kind of learn the basics of everything so you can at least be conversational at that level, but you need to hone in and focus in on something. And so some people are better at statistical analysis. Some people are people are better at the software engineering side. Um, some people are better at, you know, a particular type of not working with tabular data or whatever. Like I, I've never have to do, I never have to work with images in my job. And so right. there's no image recognition work. I don't use TensorFlow for image recognition or anything like that. So when you're learning, you have to figure out kind of how to map what, type of work you want to do back to the skill set. Um, and then when you're hiring, you have to figure out what is that skill set that person has and what do I need to kind of flesh out the team? Um, and so each of the people on our team has a, a different subset of skills to offer. And I think we complement each other really well and have been able to build out um, infrastructure uh, in addition to building the models. So when I worked as an independent contributor, I was on my own. I was building everything from the ground up. I had my Jupyter notebook with Python. I had my SQL code and I was kind of engineering the whole thing myself, but that only gets you so far. Um, once you start operating in a, as a team, you need to think about how to standardize your work, um, how to gain efficiencies, how you can hand things off to one another, how to document things. And then also I have to think about as the manager, who to assign different types of work. Um, And so it's just a different way of viewing what you do, where you're not just solving the immediate problem at hand, but it's kind of more of a a broader design problem of thinking of the team as a system and thinking of what you need to accomplish as, you know, something that all of you are working towards that's larger than any one project you're currently working on. So it's been quite a transformation, but I've really enjoyed it. And um, I'm glad my 
you know, career has gone in this direction. So um, as, as a hiring manager, actually, so, uh, you know, our, our students in the master's program um, are generally coming from, uh, a few of them coming from, um, you know, computer science backgrounds, but mostly mm-hmm. they're coming from more of like a business or, or economics undergrad degree and really starting to pick up, uh, you know, coming to our program to get the kind of data skills that will get them to an entry-level job, it, you mm-hmm. know, in some kind of analyst or, or uh, low-level data scientist role. Mm-hmm. Um, when, uh, so what should they be thinking about as they think about, you know, how to be hireable? I mean, there's the, obviously there's a set of, you know, having that set of skills. Um, what else, uh, what else makes you stand out either in a pile of resumes or once, uh, once someone's in front of a, of a person like you, who's, who's in the hiring role? Yeah, great question. And this is exactly why I had originally created my podcast to understand how do people get to that job (laughs) from learning data science from scratch all the way to, you know, filling a role. So um, I think there's a few categories that are like must haves. You have to be able to build machine learning models, of course. So some people do that in R or Python. Um, You've got to be able to write the code and evaluate your model and, and understand if you've built a good model. Um, Of course, I always advocate for adding on SQL and having those skills. I think that sets you apart right now because it's not as common for people coming right out of a data science program to be able to pull and create their own data set. So um, SQL skills, I think, are valuable. And then being able to deliver the results visually. Um, A lot of people learn how to build uh, visualizations within their like R shiny app or uh, within their Python notebook. But that's something that, for example, in our case, our clients at the universities can't access that part of our work. So we have to publish our results in a way that can be pulled into Tableau. And then we build Tableau dashboards that are interactive and let the end users interact with the results of our work. So I think any kind of BI tool, um, there's a lot of them out there that allows you to build an interactive dashboard is a great skill to have. Also, if you're going to start as a data analyst and kind of work your way into a data science role, definitely a BI tool is, is a must. Um, and BI so, stands for? Oh, business intelligence. Okay. Um, so things like Tableau or Cognos or some things, uh, tools like that. Um, okay. So kind of having that range of being able to pull your own data, being able to do the analysis and evaluate it, and then being able to visualize it and deliver it to an end user is, is part of doing the task. Um, what sets you apart for a specific role would be kind of an interest and knowledge in that particular industry. Um, so we look for people, for example, with higher ed backgrounds. So people who have worked with student level data. Not everyone on, on our team came from a higher ed background. Actually, there's two of us that had uh, worked at universities before and two that hadn't. Um, but in terms of being able to talk to the clients and understand the data you're pulling from, a subject matter expertise really takes you to another level because you're able to understand the data you're working with more than just seeing a set of numbers. You have that intuition of you know, where to look when you're doing an analysis and you can talk about it in the, the client's terms. Um, so if you're applying to a job in a certain industry, doing a little homework and reading up on that industry and what kind of data they use and what kind of analyses they're doing, um, that can help you in the interview. And um, I can talk more about the actual interview process if, if that would be helpful. 
Um, yeah, if it's a little bit of a sidetrack, so, but yeah, I, uh, I think, um, that would be, that'd be really helpful. Um, yeah. How do you, how do you do it? Or, and I see how does, how do other people do it as well? Well, and I meant more about how students can represent themselves in, right. in the interview for their first job. So yeah. often you'll be asked, um, you're kind of preparing in terms of knowing all the technical skills and, uh, knowing how to talk about your work and hopefully you have some kind of projects to reference that you've, you've worked your way through because knowing that you didn't just, you know, do the exercises in a textbook and they've actually applied it to kind of a real world type of project is really helpful for you to be able to explain what you can do. Mm-hmm. One thing I noticed when I was interviewing people for, for the roles I hired is a lot of the students that were coming right out of school would talk about their work in terms of having achieved a certain evaluation metric. So they talk about what area under the curve they got or, you know, what kind of accuracy and recall and, and precision and things like that. And it's great to know that terminology. You definitely need to know it. But in the business world, when you're talking to somebody who's not a data scientist, you have to be able to explain the value of the work you did in, in the business terms. Um, and when I say business, I don't necessarily mean like marketing, but like in the subject realm. <laughs> so if mm-hmm. it's, you know, biotech analysis, you have to be able to talk about the results and what they mean for, you know, somebody working in biotech or um, in sports. You know, if you're doing sports analysis, they don't want to know what's the area under the curve of your model. They want to know what did you predict and why and what decisions did you make and how can we use these results? So practicing talking about your work in terms of the decisions you made along the way and what the results could mean and why it's like valuable to be able to look at it that way. Um, that's really valuable and shows a kind of level of understanding beyond just being, knowing the techniques and statistics. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, um, that's something we, we definitely try to work on is, you know, first of all, have everyone do, like you said, their own actual project and not just, you know, exercises in class. Um, Mm -hmm. So that it's really something unique they can talk about, like how they, what problems they faced, how they solved those problems. Um, And uh, yeah. And then, and then being able to actually talk about it. Yeah. I know. Cause I, I definitely did this myself, you know, as you learn a new technical thing of any kind, you, you fall in love with like the subtleties and precision of the the technical language. And then you kind of forget that like, however beautiful it is that you've gotten to this higher level of understanding yourself when you're talking to other people who are not uh, immersed in your jargon, um, they, you know, you need to be able to make sure that they, they get it too. And that, that does seem to be a common challenge with people coming out of, you know, especially the natural sciences uh, or computer science with, you know, great technical skills. And then they go to, you know, a company and start working with the MBAs and, and everyone else who's doing all the other roles and, you know, have to actually mm-hmm. get things done and, and communicate what they're doing. Yeah. And the way to kind of decide when to go far in either direction in the interview, um, for example, you know, if you just finished your PhD and you can deep dive on a very specific topic, um, you have to kind of gauge who's interviewing you and when to go in that direction. So, you know, if it's, for example, for people I'm interviewing, if you're talking to me as the data science manager, you definitely want to show your chops in terms of understanding data science, understanding different techniques and models and model evaluation metrics. But then I specifically 
uh, schedule a phase, a later phase of the interview where I put you in front of non-data scientists. And so I want to see, can you explain the same thing you explained to me, but in terminology that a non-data scientist would be able to understand. And so showing that you can maneuver through that and, and explain it at different levels or in different contexts is, is really valuable. And often that's what the interviewer is looking for if they put you in front of somebody that's not a data scientist. For sure, for sure. Well, so yeah, so that that's super helpful um, as well. And I think you know, sort of the the same audience, people who are learning, who are learning uh, SQL uh, at at the start as they're building their professional careers, also uh, need this kind of uh, advice. So hopefully, interesting to everyone who's gone this far on the podcast. Um, with your own, uh, so your own podcast is on hiatus, but still uh, available for people who want to to listen to the back catalog, right? Yes. Yeah, and it's um, called it's yeah. called becoming a data scientist, and it should be available in you know Apple Podcasts or any typical podcast search you do. Yeah, and I'll and I'll put a link in the in the show notes as well. Great, um, thank you. And uh, so, yeah, so I imagine it must be it's it's great that you managed to finish a book while uh, while holding down and getting promoted in a full time job. Hmm. Um, are you? Uh, do you think you're going to uh, take on another book or, or any other big projects, or what's what's next for you? It will be a long time if I do pick up another book. Um, it's been a year since I delivered this one. Um, and, it, you know, I think it took that long to kind of emerge from the the mental backlog and, and burnout, maybe you would call it, of uh, where I had to be to, to finish it. So it was definitely challenging to do that while working full time. Um, but it feels good to have like encoded that knowledge in a book and be able to get a lot of questions from people through the becoming a data scientist, you know, Twitter account and just interacting with people. So to be able to point to something and, and say that, you know, this should help you, you know, get to that stage that, that you're trying to, to reach is it's, you know, makes you proud to be able to have something published in terms of next steps. Um, I've, I've been telling myself for years, I want to get back to podcasting. So, um, that's potentially out there as, as a next step and as a way for me to generate content that is not writing a book, which is not my wheelhouse <laughs> to, uh, you know, write in this, this very, uh, you know, formal way, I guess you would say to, to put it in, in a, in a book. Um, so potentially podcasting, um, potentially just, uh, maybe getting back out into it to uh, conferences. Uh, Pre-COVID, I was involved in a, a lot of conferences and conference planning and, and speaking at conferences. Um, and we're in this in-between transitional period now. I'm still doing all my appearances online, um, but kind of wanting to branch out and uh, present on topics that people might not have heard from me uh, about before. So just finding ways to generate content other than writing, I think is probably the next step. Great. Um, okay. Well, thank you so much for uh, for coming on on my podcast. Um, yeah, you are you are very easy to talk to. So uh, it'd be great to have you back uh, in the in the driver's seat if you can find time for that um, as well. But uh, um, yeah, thank this you. has been super useful. Um, and uh, again, for um, audience members, I'll um, have links to uh, your um, to your Twitter feed, which is ongoing. To your uh, blog uh, and podcast, which is which is archived and may may be resurrected, and of course to uh, the book "Sequel for Data Scientists: A Beginner's Guide for Building Datasets for Analysis."
Yeah, yeah, thank, thank you. you. And I want to make sure that people know that that website is interactive. So uh, when you get the book, it's really helpful to go to that website and be able to practice what you're learning in the book. Yes, that's a really great, uh, great feature that um, I, I love that you've taken advantage of that. I think a lot of people working in their, on their own don't do that, but you have those uh, you know, data scientist instincts. So it's, it's great that you put together a web page that works so well and, and complements the um, the the physical book. Great. Well, thank you for having me on. It's been great to be able to talk about my book and kind of get back into podcasting in, in one way <laughs> as a guest. Yeah. Thank you so much.